The Vampire Introduction The superstition upon which this tale is founded is very general in the East. Among the Arabians, it appears to be common. It did not, however, extend itself to the Greeks until after the embellishment of Christianity, and it has only assumed its present form since the division of the Latin and Greek churches, at which time the idea becoming prevalent that a Latin body could not corrupt if buried in their territory, it gradually increased and formed the subject of many wonderful stories, still extant, of the dead rising from their graves and feeding upon the blood of the young and beautiful. In the West it spread, with some slight variation, all over Hungary, Poland, Austria, and Lorraine, where the belief existed that vampires nightly imbibed a certain portion of the blood of their victims, who became emaciated, lost their strength, and speedily died of consumptions, whilst these human bloodsuckers fattened, and their veins became distended to such a state of repletion as to cause the blood to flow from all the passages of their bodies, and even from the very pores of their skins. In the London Journal of March 1732 is a curious and, of course, credible account of a particular case of vampirism, which is stated to have occurred at Madriga in Hungary. It appears that upon an examination of the commander-in-chief and magistrates of the place, they positively and unanimously affirmed that about five years before, a certain Hayduke named Arnold Paul had been heard to say that at Kasovia, on the frontiers of the Turkish Servia, he had been tormented by a vampire, but had found a way to rid himself of the evil by eating some of the earth out of the vampire's grave and rubbing himself with his blood. This precaution, however, did not prevent him from becoming a vampire himself. The universal belief is that a person sucked by a vampire becomes a vampire himself and sucks in his turn. For about twenty or thirty days after his death and burial, many persons complained of having been tormented by him, and a deposition was made that four persons had been deprived of life by his attacks. To prevent further mischief, the inhabitants, having consulted their Hadagni, chief bailiff, took up the body and found it, as is supposed to be usual in cases of vampirism, fresh and entirely free from corruption and emitting from the mouth, nose, and ears pure and florid blood. Proof having been thus obtained, they resorted to the accustomed remedy. A stake was driven entirely through the heart and body of Arnold Paul, at which he is reported to have cried out as dreadfully as if he had been alive. This done, they cut off his head, burned his body, and threw the ashes into his grave. The same measures were adopted with the corpses of all those persons who had previously died from vampirism, lest they should, in their turn, become agents upon others who survived them. This monstrous rodomontade is here related because it seems better adapted to illustrate the subject of the present observations than any other instance which could be adduced. In many parts of Greece it is considered as a sort of punishment after death for some henuous crime committed whilst in existence that the deceased is not only doomed to vampirize, but compelled to confine his infernal visitations solely to those beings he loved most while upon earth. Those to whom he was bound by ties of kindred and affection, a supposition alluded to in the Jower, but first on earth, as vampire sent, thy corpse shall from its tomb be rent, then ghastly haunt the native place and suck the blood of all thy race. 
there from thy daughter, sister, wife, at midnight drained the stream of life, yet loathe the banquet which perforce must feed thy livid living corpse. Thy victims, ere they yet expire, shall know the demon for their sire. As cursing thee, thou cursing them, thy flowers are withered on the stem. But one that for thy crime must fall, the youngest, best, beloved of all, shall bless thee with a father's name. That word shall wrap thy heart in flame. Yet thou must end thy task and mark her cheek's last tinge, her eye's last spark. And the last glassy glance must view which breezes o'er its lifeless blue. Then with unhallowed hand shall tear the tresses of her yellow hair, of which in life a lock when shorn, affection's fondest pledge was worn. But now is borne away by thee, memorial of thine agony. Yet with thine own best blood shall drip thy gnashing tooth and haggard lip. Then stalking to thy sullen grave, go, and with ghouls and defreats rave, till these in horror shrink away from spectre more accursed than they. Mr. Southey has also introduced in his wild but beautiful poem Thalaba, the vampire corpse of the Arabian maid Oniza, who is represented as having returned from the grave for the purpose of tormenting him she best loved whilst in existence. But this cannot be supposed to have resulted from the sinfulness of her life, she being portrayed throughout the whole of the tale as a complete type of purity and innocence. The voracious Tornifor gives a long account in his travels of several astonishing cases of vampirism, to which he pretends to have been an eyewitness, and Calmet, in his great work upon the subject, besides a variety of anecdotes and traditionary narratives illustrative of its effects, has put forth some learned dissertations, tending to prove it to be a classical as well as a barbarian error. Many curious and interesting notices on this singularly horrible superstition might be added. Though the present may suffice for the limits of a note, necessarily devoted to explanation, and which may now be concluded by merely remarking that though the term vampire is the one in most general acceptation, there are several others synonymous with it, made use of in various parts of the world, such as rucolocha, vardulacha, ghoul, brucoloca, etc. The Vampire It happened that in the midst of the dissipations attendant upon a London winter, there appeared at the various parties of the leaders of the town a nobleman, more remarkable for his singularities than his rank. He gazed upon the mirth around him, as if he could not participate therein. Apparently, the light laughter of the fair only attracted his attention, that he might by a look quell it and throw fear into those breasts where thoughtlessness reigned. Those who felt this sensation of awe could not explain whence it arose. Some attributed it to the dead gray eye, which fixing upon the object's face did not seem to penetrate and at one glance to pierce through to the inward workings of the heart, but fell upon the cheek with a leaden ray that weighed upon the skin it could not pass. His peculiarities caused him to be invited to every house. All wished to see him, and those who had been accustomed to violent excitement, and now felt the weight of ennui, were pleased at having something in their presence capable of engaging their attention. In spite of the deadly hue of his face, which never gained a warmer tint, either from the blush of modesty 
or from the strong emotion of passion. Though its form and outline were beautiful, many of the female hunters after notoriety attempted to win his attention and gain at least some marks of what they might term affection. Lady Mercer, who had been the mockery of every monster shewn in drawing rooms since her marriage, threw herself in this way, and did all but put on the dress of a mountebank to attract his notice, though in vain. When she stood before him, though his eyes were apparently fixed upon hers, still it seemed as if they were unperceived. Even her unappalled impudence was baffled, and she left the field. But though the common adulteress could not influence even the guidance of his eyes, it was not that the female sex was indifferent to him, yet such was the apparent caution with which he spoke to the virtuous wife and innocent daughter, that few knew he ever addressed himself to females. He had, however, the reputation of a winning tongue, and whether it was that that it even overcame the dread of a singular character, or that they were moved by his apparent hatred of vice, he was as often among those females who form the boast of their sex from their domestic virtues as among those who sully it by their vices. About the same time there came to London a young gentleman of the name of Aubrey. He was an orphan left with an only sister in the possession of great wealth, by parents who died while he was yet in childhood, left also to himself by guardians who thought it their duty merely to take care of his fortune while they relinquished the more important charge of his mind to the care of mercenary subalterns, he cultivated more his imagination than his judgment. He had hence that high romantic feeling of honor and candor which daily ruins so many milliners' apprentices. He believed all to sympathize with virtue, and thought that vice was thrown in by providence merely for the picturesque effect of the scene, as we see in romances. He thought that the misery of a cottage merely consisted in the vesting of clothes, which were as warm, but which were better adapted to the painter's eye by their irregular folds and various colored patches. He thought, in fine, that the dreams of poets were the realities of life. He was handsome, frank, and rich. For these reasons, upon his entering into the gay circles, many mothers surrounded him, striving which should describe with least truth their languishing, romping favorites. The daughters, at the same time, by their brightening countenances when he approached, and by their sparkling eyes when he opened his lips, soon led him into false notions of his talents and his merit. Attached as he was to the romance of his solitary hours, he was startled at finding that, except in the tallow and wax candles that flickered, not from the presence of a ghost, but from want of snuffing, there was no foundation in real life for any of that conjuries of pleasing pictures and descriptions contained in those volumes, from which he had formed his study. Finding, however, some compensation in his gratified vanity, he was about to relinquish his dreams when the extraordinary being we have above described crossed him in his career. He watched him and the very impossibility of forming an idea of the character of a man entirely absorbed in himself, who gave few other signs of his observation of external objects than the tacit assent to their existence, implied by the avoidance of their contact. Allowing his imagination to picture everything that flattered its propensity to extravagant ideas, he soon formed this object into the hero of a romance, and determined to observe the offspring of his fancy rather than that person before him. He became acquainted with him, 
paid him attentions and so far advanced upon his notice that his presence was always recognized. He gradually learnt that Lord Ruthven's affairs were embarrassed and soon found from the notes of preparation in Blank Street that he was about to travel. Desirous of gaining some information respecting this singular character, who till now had only whetted his curiosity, he hinted to his guardians that it was time for him to perform the tour, which for many generations has been thought necessary to enable the young to take some rapid steps in the career of vice towards putting themselves upon an equality with the aged, and not allowing them to appear as if fallen from the skies. Whenever scandalous intrigues are mentioned as the subjects of pleasantry or of praise, according to the degree of skill shown in carrying them on, they consented, and Aubrey, immediately mentioning his intentions to Lord Ruthven, was surprised to receive from him a proposal to join him. Flattered by such a mark of esteem from him, who apparently had nothing in common with other men, he gladly accepted it, and in a few days they had passed the circling waters. Thereto, Aubrey had no opportunity of studying Lord Ruthven's character, and now he found that, though many more of his actions were exposed to his view, the results offered different conclusions from the apparent motives to his conduct. His companion was profuse in his liberality. The idle, the vagabond, and the beggar received from his hand more than enough to relieve their immediate wants. But Aubrey could not avoid remarking that it was not upon the virtuous, reduced by indigence, by the misfortunes attendant upon every virtue, that he bestowed his alms. These were sent from the door with hardly suppressed sneers. But when the profligate came to ask something, not to relieve his wants, but to allow him to wallow in his lust, or to sink him deeper in his iniquity, he was sent away with rich charity. This was, however, attributed by him to the greater importunity of the vicious, which generally prevails over the retiring bashfulness of the virtuous indigent. There was one circumstance about the charity of his lordship, which was still more impressed upon his mind. All those upon whom it was bestowed inevitably found that there was a curse upon it, for they were all either led to the scaffold or sunk to the lowest and the most abject misery. At Brussels and other towns, through which they passed, Aubrey was surprised at the apparent eagerness with which his companions sought for the centres of all fashionable vice. There he entered into all the spirit of the pharaoh table. He betted and always gambled with success, except where the known sharper was his antagonist, and then he lost even more than he gained but it was always with the same unchanging face with which he generally watched the society around. It was not, however, so when he encountered the rash, youthful novice or the luckless father of a numerous family, then his very wish seemed fortune's law. This apparent abstractedness of mind was laid aside, and his eyes sparkled with more fire than that of a cat whilst dallying with the half-dead mouse. In every town he left the formerly affluent youth torn from the circle he adorned, cursing in the solitude of a dungeon, the fate that had drawn him within the reach of this fiend, whilst many a father sat frantic amidst the speaking looks of mute hungry children without a single farthing of his late immense wealth, wherewith to buy even sufficient to satisfy their present craving. Yet he took no money from the gambling table, but immediately lost to the ruiner of many 
the last gilder he had just snatched from the convulsive grasp of the innocent. This might but be the result of certain degree of knowledge, which was not, however, capable of combating the cunning of the more experienced. Aubrey often wished to represent this to his friend, and beg him to resign that charity and pleasure which proved the ruin of all, and did not tend to his own profit. But he delayed it. For each day he hoped his friend would give him some opportunity of speaking frankly and openly to him. However, this never occurred. Lord Ruthven, in his carriage and amidst the various wild and rich scenes of nature, was always the same. His eye spoke less than his lip, and though Aubrey was near the object of his curiosity, he obtained no greater gratification from it than the constant excitement of vainly wishing to break that mystery, which to his exalted imagination began to assume the appearance of something supernatural. They soon arrived at Rome, and Aubrey for a time lost sight of his companion. He left him in daily attendance upon the morning circle of an Italian countess, whilst he went in search of the memorials of another almost deserted city. Whilst he was thus engaged, letters arrived from England, which he opened with eager impatience. The first was from his sister, breathing nothing but affection. The others were from his guardians. The latter astonished him. If it had before entered into his imagination that there was an evil power resident in his companion, these seemed to give him sufficient reason for the belief. His guardians insisted upon his immediately leaving his friend and urged that his character was dreadfully vicious, for that the possession of irresistible powers of seduction rendered his licentiousness habits more dangerous to society. It had been discovered that his contempt for the adulteress had not originated in hatred of her character, but that he had required to enhance his gratification that his victim, the partner of his guilt, should be hurled from the pinnacle of unsullied virtue down to the lowest abyss of infamy and degradation. In fine, that all those females whom he had sought, apparently on account of their virtue, had since his departure thrown even the mask aside, and had not scrupled to expose the whole deformity of their vices to the public gaze. Aubrey determined upon leaving one, whose character had not yet shown a single bright point on which to rest the eye. He resolved to invent some plausible pretext for abandoning him altogether, proposing in the meanwhile to watch him more closely, and let no slight circumstance pass by unnoticed. He entered into the same circle, and soon perceived that his lordship was endeavouring to work upon the inexperience of the daughter of the lady whose house he chiefly frequented. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.